0: Mark chapter 2, before we hear the Lord, the, uh, the text read and preached and received, let's pray the Lord's blessing upon those very things. Let's pray once more. Lord God, we come now to you and we are eager to hear your word. We come to sit at your feet, to be still and to listen. And we pray, dear Lord, help us to settle our souls and focus our hearts. Help us to receive from you that which is most important, this your word, because it is there that you give us yourself. Through your spirit, your grace, your blessing, indeed your kingdom, it is for all of these that we yearn and long. Lord, we pray, open our eyes and our hearts that we might accept by faith all that we hear, that it may change our lives and our hearts, that we would be transformed into the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. 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 Mark chapter 2, starting at verse... 13, 13 to 17, yes. Mark 2, sorry, verse 13. Please give your attention. This is the word of the living God. And he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we come this morning to this brief passage the call of Levi and the dining place of sinners. The call of Levi and the dining place of sinners. <clears throat> We're confronted, as we do in this brief passage, with questions. Questions about the kingdom. Who gets in the kingdom? And what are the qualifications for getting in to this kingdom? And it's through a controversy that these questions come to us. Uh, We find this throughout Mark 2 and 3. We've seen it already, the conflict and the controversy um, by what Jesus uh, does and says. And as these controversies take place, um, we'll have many things revealed to us in these chapters about the nature and the manner of the kingdom of God. So as we come to this text, let's discover there, once again, who gets in the kingdom and what's the qualification for those who do so. You'll notice as we begin the text, as we heard in verse 13, Christ is again, it says, by the sea. By the sea, and what's he doing? He's calling disciples unto himself. And if you'll remember last week, Christ... Uh, made this bold declaration that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And with that declaration came conflict, came offense, right? He blasphemed uh, in their thinking. How could this man essentially consider himself God or take on the prerogative of God himself? And as he's coming from this point, this drama of the text that we've just seen, uh, the healing and the cleansing and the forgiving, uh, a high point, if you will, declaring the lepers sins forgiven, raising that paralytic. And he's traveling by the sea. Um, and the sea, of course, is something that's very important in the Gospel of Mark. It was a very important place. Actually, throughout Scripture, the sea uh, is an important theme, is an important theme that we see there. But remember for now that <clears throat> so far in the Gospel, the only other mention of the sea Uh, was in chapter 1, when Christ was, again, calling disciples to himself. And so Christ comes, and he calls this man named Levi. And Levi, it says, immediately followed him. We're not given background. Mark is brief. He's uh, he's fast-paced. There's no background about him. There's not much about Levi. It's very brief. It says, once again, um, very churchly, says he's a tax collector. We know from the other Gospels that Levi is none other than Matthew, who would go on to write the Gospel of Matthew. But Mark's point, again, as it was before, in not giving information is very important. And that point is that as this kingdom advances, it is so worthy of being joined to that dramatic action is called for. Action, a response is called for. That's how important and worthy this kingdom is as it goes forward. And so when Christ comes and says, follow me, a man has to leave everything and follow him. That's the kind of kingdom that this is. And this is the urgency that's required of that call. And so we see as we read this, that this call comes in uh, Capernaum, um, a, a pretty important place in regards to business. It was a center for commerce and travel. And from that lang- the language of the text... Um, We see that Levi is, it says, a tax collector in this region. Tax collector is how this is translated, usually in our English Bibles. Um, But that's not really merely what they did. They didn't just collect taxes. Uh, So it's a bit misleading. Uh, The word is related to a noun that means buying or purchasing. And that's because he's not a tax collector in that he doesn't work directly for the Roman government. He's actually an entrepreneur. And so what Rome would do, um, appealing to men's greed, is he would, they would sell regions of land, um, which required a certain amount of taxes to be paid uh, for that land. <clears throat> and uh, Rome would say to someone like Levi, um, and so we'll sell you that region, the, the, the rights to it. However much more you can collect over what we want, that's up to you. You can make as much as you want or as little as you want, as long as we get the taxes that we've set uh, for it. And you think of this kind of uh, situation. What kind of people would you think would be interested, attracted to that kind of business? To be a tax farmer, really, is what they were. That's kind of the more um, how it's historically been understood. Um, who would who would be involved in this? Right? What would characterize someone like this? That someone who uh, greed would certainly be um, a descriptor. Shrewdness, right? Someone to to pull and extract from his people extra money. That he tells them are owed to, to Rome, also that he can fill his own wallet. <clears throat> and these tax collectors, tax farmers, uh, they weren't poor, right? No one went into that business to become poor. They worked the system and they leached from their own countrymen. He's named after right, Levi, one of the tribes of Israel. And so they worked the system and they leached from their countrymen. They didn't have a good reputation, they didn't have a reputation for giving people breaks on their taxes or for breaking even in their business or even doing without. They always made money, which means they were always what? Extorting their own people of money for themselves. And so you can imagine these tax farmers uh, were not all that popular amongst the businessmen, amongst the landowners. They were not the kind of people that you would want to associate with. They were actually and accurately viewed as treasonous because that's what they were. That's what they were doing. They were going against their own nation and people and taking the side of and serving Rome for their own gain. And so every time you saw one of these individuals, a tax farmer, it was a reminder, as you did, we're not entirely free. We're not really back in the land like we should be. Because all of my life I'm paying tolls, I'm paying taxes, even some of my own people are always taking money from me. So tax farmers were really low on the hierarchy of society. Truly outcasts, and the rabbis viewed them in this way as well. Uh, They viewed them um, along the likes of robbers and murderers. In the gospels, as you know, you're familiar with, they're commonly linked with people of the likes of sinners and prostitutes. They aren't people you'd invite to family gatherings. They're people you avoid, they're enemies of God, and they're enemies of God's people. Yet this is the kind of person, as Christ is teaching, that he reaches out to here in our passage, and he says, you follow me. And as he does, he's brought right back to the problem that we saw earlier in this chapter. He's forced into a situation where he's dealing with those who are unclean, outcasts. Earlier it was because of what, you remember, a physical malady this individual had, a physical ailment. But here, it's a moral ailment. This man is morally impaired by his own choice all to enrich himself. And Christ has no problem associating himself by his own choice with this kind of moral loser as it were in the community. And how did the other disciples feel? Right, if it's, We're always in danger and I bring this up a lot because um, it's true, we're so familiar with these with the text and so familiar with these incidents uh, that it is kind of we, we, uh, they're, they're, the familiarity breeds like cavalierness about it what do you think the disciples given this situation how do you think they felt about this man Levi Christ calling him and him following them right? they, were, they were happy and willing uh, to follow Jesus in chapter 1 right? but that was before they knew who he'd make them associate with in chapter 2 and again notice where this call happens he called them by the sea why is that <clears throat> because that's his turf. That's where he's collecting taxes. And Jesus calls him to join with his disciples. And where were they called, the disciples? They were called by the sea. Why? Because they're fishermen. And so it's likely that these men already had interactions within one another. The disciples likely knew Levi, this tax collector, tax farmer. And we know this because we have inscriptions that have been found um, from Asia, for instance, that tell us that Rome, which was under Roman Roman control at the time, that there was a toll on fish, right? The fishermen paid a toll on, on, on their goods, right? So the fishing industry was taxed, and part of the proceeds of all that you caught went to the Romans. So it makes sense that these disciples, every time they caught anything from that Sea of Galilee, they had to walk over to Levi's booth, and give him part of their hard-earned income, and likely also Levi's cut that he added on top of what was required by the Romans. And so imagine that. As Christ says to him, you follow me. You would think, you can't possibly be talking about that guy. You can't be talking about him. He's a known enemy, remember, of the nation in general, and specifically to these fishermen as businessmen. And we have to understand how this works in that culture as well, right? The associations and in the, in the, the, uh, the contact societally in that culture um, it's framed enti- almost completely on honor and shame honor and shame, that's hard for us to grasp in our day and age in our culture but think of uh, a culture being framed around those things where honor is the most important thing in your life and showing yourself Shameful, shaming yourself is the worst possible um, uh, thing you could commit. The tax collector was hated and despised because he chose money over honor. Honor was not the most important thing, it was money. It doesn't, also doesn't help in our time that uh, uh, the sad fact that the reality is uh, there doesn't seem to be anything that's too shameful to do if it brings in money in our culture. Our culture carries little reflection of this idea, honor and shame. And for Jesus to bring this man into their group, into this band of disciples, brings shame upon them and also truly disparages the name of Christ, particularly after what we just read that Jesus did, the cleansing and the healing. He does this, and he identifies, associates with this man. He's damaging, again, his reputation by associating with these kinds of people. And it was seen from the outside, as we move on in verse 15, it goes from bad to worse. Once again, it says this. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Right? There's the conflict, there's the confrontation, there's the outrage. and We know from Luke's gospel, the telling of this story, it makes clear that this meal is not just any meal, it's a feast, it's a banquet. Luke also tells us plainly that it takes place in Levi's house. But Mark doesn't do that, he doesn't show that. I wonder if you've ever wondered that or thought why that is framed in this way, why Mark does this. Because Mark focuses... Uh, Jesus as the host of this particular meal. He speaks of him in these terms. Did you notice in the text it says, he, Jesus, reclined at table, not Levi. And many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus. And that's not the normal way that this would be described. Normally, if you're hosting the meal, everyone's reclining with you, it's your table, right? It's your meal, you're the host. You're not not reclining with with another guest. But Mark does this. He tells us, uh, he shows us this from the angle where Jesus is the host. And this means that all the blame for all the faux pas and missteps that are going on will fall on Jesus, particularly if the wrong people are there. And that's the complaint that comes, right? The Pharisees, the scribes, the Pharisees see what Jesus is doing, and they say, what's he doing? What's he doing eating with them? And to our ears, that kind of sounds... Um, pedantic, right? Or just nice or accepting, right? Jesus, eating with sinners, just a nice guy. It just sounds nice to us. But we have to remember, we began to talk a little bit about this this morning, the catechism class, that a meal in this culture isn't just the sharing of food or sharing of a time where you're eating together. A meal is a decision that's being made. It's a statement about what you value, about who is in, in your sphere, in your world, and who is out in your world. And you can't invite the wrong people in from the outside, because if you do that, you'd be joining yourself to them. You don't leave those, of, those out who are valued because you'd be telling them what? You don't belong here. You're not valued by me. And so a meal is more than just eating. Uh, it carried social significance, And the more formal the meal, by the way, the more it was full of messages and significance and protocol. Um, Messages about what? About honor and social rank. Messages about who you consider your people, about who belongs, about who is pure, who is holy. The meal became a place where you drew lines in this culture. These are the people I'm willing to associate with and bind myself to my life to, not those. And Jesus had just done what? He just joined himself. With tax collectors and sinners. And you notice that one of the reasons it was so important in this culture to draw that line is because you weren't just eating food together. You were sharing the same meal. Right? It's not as if they went and got separate meals and were eating. Right? They were sharing the same meals. And so you're bringing it into yourselves, the food from the same plate or from the same loaf. And as you have that bond of community, you were saying to these people, you belong with me. And they also believed, regarding meals, that it's not just you who eats there, but God comes to all of your meals. And so God is involved. And so you're really making a statement about when you're eating and who you accept to your table, about who God will accept. And if you bring the wrong people in, you're committing a sin, not only against your family and the community, but against God himself. It's like you're saying God is willing to be with and to commune with people like that. It isn't just consuming food and drink. That's not what happened in this culture. It's not just a meal. And yet here is Christ. We see him there reclining with tax collectors and sinners and his disciples. And some of those disciples are all three, by the way, right? Tax collectors, sinners, and disciples. And when we hear the word also sinner, We think of a certain kind of person or certain actions of a person. And yes, the catechism answer is true. Sin is any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. But at this time in this culture, it could also just mean someone who doesn't have the time or the care to remain ritually pure. Someone who has no time uh, to always be washing before meals ritually. Maybe he's too busy, maybe he's not high enough societally to bother with all the steps needed to uh, truly uh, uh, have ritual purity. And so he just eats what's ever brought before him with defiled hands. And they'd look down on him and they would say, he's just a, a land worker, he's just a sinner. He doesn't care about holiness like we Pharisees care about holiness. And the Pharisees did, in fact. They had marked themselves out as those who were clean, who did, who did care Did care about keeping purity, keeping those sorts of laws. And lots of history happens into intertestamental period. But they ended up uh, being very committed to keeping themselves to keep pure by forcing upon themselves, right, you know what they did, um, certain rites and rituals that really only the priests were required to keep. And they did it <clears throat> To say, we're not not—we're doing this to show that we're not going to associate with Jews who don't care about these things, who don't care about Messiah's coming. We don't associate with, with those who don't care about the kingdom and about holiness. We're the holy ones. We're the ones waiting for God to come and to redeem his people again. And we'll be ready when he comes. Imagine that, the Pharisees. And this is the context in which Jesus brings sinners to dine with him and violates all of this cultural protocol. And he calls a tax farmer, sits down with sinners, and he joins them all in a meal in front of everyone to see and everyone to be offended by. That's no way for a true rabbi and savior to act if he's bringing in God's kingdom. He's doing it all wrong. Clearly no one told him differently. No one told him the way. And them being present, the scribes and the Pharisees, are outraged. What would God make of this? Christ doesn't seem to care at all about holiness. But what right does he just sit down and eat with these people, sinners, and apparently accept them into his own band of disciples? Who is this guy? And that's the question we have to contend with. They had a lot of problems, but that's a question that we have to contend with ourselves. Because we think of the situation of Israel, right? How is it uh, in this picture, Christ, who is the Holy One, says to sinners, feel free to come and eat and join your life with mine. Again, Israel has been exiled from the land. Why? Due to sin, due to their not caring about these things. And Messiah comes and eats with sinners. The description of those who were kicked out of the land for being sinners, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense that purity is so important. And yet, that's what's before us in this text this morning. Again, verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating, and drink, eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 17. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. And Christ is making it very plain right at the front here is who's allowed, and here is who's disallowed. And the categories he uses are not what we would expect that he would use. He has not come for everyone, he's saying, he's only come for sinners. And what does that mean? Have you thought much about that? What does it mean? Isn't it good to be righteous? What does it mean that he isn't here for the righteous? Well, a couple of different you know, but there are different ways you could parse that out, but we might think that it means, well, you're already righteous. Pharisees, you're already good and faithful Jews. You're keeping holiness, you're trying to be clean and pure. You're not the problem in Israel. No, I've come for sinners. Because they need to clean themselves up and become like you so that God may bring his kingdom and his peace back to you. That's not what he's saying. They might have thought that's what he was saying. It's not what he's saying. And we know that's not what he's saying. From uh, We read Jesus' own words and, and see his works throughout his ministry. What he's saying in this, that I've not come for the righteous, he's saying, okay, you're righteous. I'll take you at your word. Therefore, you don't need any, any uh, you don't have any need for what I'm offering you. I've come up with a very specific mission, and you don't fit the categories of that mission. Therefore, I've not come for you in any way. Right? And you remember in John 9, uh, when Christ heals the blind man, remember? And the question comes who, who, who sinned that this man is, is blind? Was it him or his parents? And Christ heals him and all the rest, and ultimately the Pharisees ask him, well, hey, aren't we blind too? And you remember what Christ said? He says, if you're blind, then I can make you see. But since you say we see, you remain in your blindness. It's what's going on here. Think of the the parable of the tax collector um, and the Pharisee praying in the temple, remember. When the one beats on his chest and he says, woe is me, I'm a sinner, have mercy on me. And the other presents his unrighteousness. Bear before God. And Christ says plainly, one of these men went away, went home justified. And it was not the one who claimed his own righteousness. It was the one who admitted his sinfulness. Christ is even willing to accept their uh, self-perception of these Pharisees, of those coming at him, complaining. He doesn't challenge their self-identity. He says, okay, since you're righteous, I didn't come for you. Don't you see, the kingdom that is coming comes to make right that which has been broken through the fall and ever since. And since you see yourself as unbroken, it has nothing to give you. And if I'm here to bring wholeness and you're already whole, I have no gift for you. I only come for those who know that they're broken. And surely Levi, a tax collector and extortionist of his people, would know his brokenness. He's experienced shame every day of his life, of his existence since he's done this. He knows he's on the outside. He's repudiated. He knows he will never be acceptable in Israel or to God. That's the way he sees it. Because culturally, that was the truth. Yet, and listen here, if you've tuned out, tune back in. And yet, Christ will explain to the Pharisees that what? If they ever want to join the kingdom, and if you, brothers and sisters, ever want to join the kingdom, they would have to change the way they identified themselves. They would have to switch and leave the righteous ones and join themselves to the band of sinners. And the question is, are they willing to do that? Are they willing to do that? Many of them were not. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to be self-reflective enough to realize that at the end of the day we have nothing to offer God in our own righteousness? That what God's standards are and who we are shows plainly, shows us that we are broken, that we are unfit, that we are sinful, and that we truly are in need of redemption? Or will we keep telling ourselves, I'm a good person, I'm not like people who do bad things. But Christ says the only way to join the kingdom is to say, no, I really am in that company. These really are my people. Those sinners are my kind. And only then do you have any hope of entering in the kingdom of God. All right, here again, if, if you're satisfied with your, your righteousness, or if you're not that bad, Christ did not come for you, and that's not good news. That's the worst news, because you will be exposed for who you truly are on that last day. So whether it's it's the mistake of thinking, well, I haven't done that much bad stuff, therefore God must like me, and I'll be fine. This is very common if you don't know. I'm a pretty good person, and God will be okay with me. Or the other mistake of thinking, Jesus doesn't care about holiness all that much, after all. He died for sins. He doesn't care about sins. He doesn't care about righteousness, really, in any way. He's just an all-accepting guy. Jesus likes sinners. Those are both errors, right? But remember this passage follows. It's based uh, on, this, on what came before. Remember, that these people are at table to sit Uh, are able to sit at table with Jesus. Why? Not because he doesn't care about their sins, but because what? From his own mouth. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And the reason they can gather there is not because he says sin doesn't matter, but rather he knows. Jesus can say to people who know they are truly sinful, he can say to those who are honest about that, I have the power within me to forgive you. And in forgiving you, to change you forevermore. The kingdom, this kingdom does not come for those who deny it. It comes for only the broken and the sinful. But it doesn't stop there. The promise doesn't stop there of this kingdom. It seeks to renew them and to make them into the very image of Christ himself throughout their life. And what, what gives sinners the right to sit at table with Christ is that he has the power and the authority to forgive sinners who come to him acknowledging that state. In this table, and this table, is a picture of the future. And you can know that because of what the Gospels do with Christ around other tables that we read about. Christ will say as the Gospel goes forward, and as he sits with his disciples who are tax collectors and sinners, he can say to them at that meal, this is my body, broken for you. This is my blood which is poured out for the remission of your sins. And the reason you sit with me at table is because what am I about to go and do in body and blood? And the reason you can gather with me here is not because I don't care about sins but I have come to make the world right again by giving my life for those who know that they have a need and that they're unfit and they could never come on their own. Those who know that they're broken. Those who know they're estrangement and their enmity with God. And I will give my own body and blood in order to secure your place at that table. And Christ makes it clear that in that table and the giving of body and blood that it's pointing forward to another table. Remember, he said, I will not drink of the vine again until when? Until I eat and drink with you in the kingdom. That day when God restores all things and we're ushered into the great marriage supper of the Lamb. On that day when we'll finally see him and we'll gather around him at his table, at that table. And those who were sinners but now have been made completely new. New creations in the resurrection of the dead that his work secured for them. The glorious thought. Christ comes, you see, for sinners and sinners only. And if you cannot identify yourself as one, you'll never sit at that final table. But he comes for sinners in order that he might forgive them and make them new. New creations for a new creation through the shedding of his blood and the breaking of his body. So people of God, this table is set for sinners. Sinners who are making their way to a final table where they were truly in righteousness sit with the righteous one. So come this day admitting who you are. Again, not qualified. Not qualified to come. Not clean, not whole, not righteous in and of yourself. But come looking to Christ by faith. And in doing so, repenting of all of your sins and failings, even of this past week. Those things that are not fitting for this Savior. You are united to him. If you are united to him, your identity is in Jesus. The righteous one, the perfect one. And he calls to you. See who you are. Now go be who you are, trusting and walking with him in faith and glory for all of your life, even to eternity. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father and our loving God, we delight to give you praise. We are overwhelmed at your love and your mercy towards us. We thank you for your providence in our lives and for our beloved Savior who gave his life for our sins and rose for our justification. And we pray, Lord, that you would continue to strengthen us and to protect us. Help us, Lord, to walk in Christ in this pilgrim life, to love him more, to know him more. Help us to know and believe and trust in your strength and in your righteousness, and that apart from you, helpless sinners, but in you holy and pure. Clean enough to sit at table with you. Help us, Lord, we pray as you're working in us. We pray for this church. Strengthen um, the individuals and the families here. Strengthen us as a body. or continue to, continue to walk with us and carry us in love. Lord, help us to be self-sacrificial for you as you were for us and to show the love that we've been shown. Father, bless the families of this church, bless the children that they would never know a day where they did not know their Savior, and like the children of Zion, they would sing with delight and glory as they come, knowing Christ as their Savior for all of their days. Lord, we pray for the parents that they would set a righteous example, and they would train them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, and Lord, that when they fall and fail, and when they fail, that they would be honest with their children, children, that their children would know that they, they have a mutual Savior who loves them both. Lord, we pray for those who are suffering in this congregation, physically or financially, or relationally, whatever it might be, Lord. Help us all to know that you are the God of the resurrection of the dead, and the God of provision and sustenance, and that these things are passing away and that we will one day be made new, without disease, without brokenness, without hurt in our bodies, without sin. Father, we pray strengthen us, be with us in all that we do. Carry us and be with us until we can come again as your people and meet once more to delight in Jesus, our Savior. We ask it all in his name. Amen.